kids can be dismissed if they want to go to the activity over in the other room. If parents would like them to go to the other room, I guess they can be dismissed. It's up to parents, not the kids. You get to decide. And I forgot to mention this morning, I think most of you are aware of it, it's on the calendar and a few other places, but Wednesday evening is a evening that lots of folks have family things planned, and we are having no services here Wednesday evening, so free to make your family plans and enjoy the evening. I think that's all the announcements we got. All right, I think all the kids have gone away. We've uh, worked all this year on questions that people ask about the Bible, simple, basic questions, and we broke it down into a number of topics and have looked at those. The uh, sixth topic that we're finishing up on this year is people ask a lot of times, uh, why are there so many churches? They just don't understand that. If you've got one Bible, if you're all following one Jesus... How can you have so many different churches that claim to be following the Bible, claim to be following Jesus, and yet not be able to be unified? So we're working on that for the past two weeks, tonight and next week. We'll finish up with some thoughts about that. We started last week with the, the chart, and I reprinted it on the back of tonight's handout with... The first page will probably be what we cover next week, uh, but we didn't get through the chart. I got a little too loquacious and didn't uh, get that finished up, but the chart is basically uh, uh, the big picture is what I call it. It's um, the church through history, and then the little block up at the top, it's got what the Bible says about the church. And it says there's one church. It says Jesus said I would build my church. It tells when it was established. It tells who enters the church. Uh, talks about only one church, Ephesians 4 4. Christ is the head of the church. No man is the head of the church. Talks about Jesus praying for unity. That's how the world would know his church, is if it was unified. Paul commanded unity, and he warned specifically, the Holy Spirit warned specifically, about divisions in the church and what would cause them. So we started there, and then we looked at what happened for real in history. Uh, and I talked about how the church of the Bible is very different from the church of the Yellow Pages. Uh, the church of the, today is all divisions, subdivisions, brands, titles, uh, you can find almost anything that claim to be a church that follows the Bible and follows Jesus. So where did the difference come from? Well, that's what we're working on on this chart is uh, how things happened through history with the church. We got to about the about one-third from the left there uh, where it broke into two big divisions. Uh, the first, if you weren't here last week, the first big block going downhill is the apostasy. That took a thousand years, and that's what happened as the church moved further and further away from what Jesus and the apostles had taught. Uh, they came up with new ideas, new doctrines, changed some things, and it just got 
more and more different from the church of the Bible. In 1054, the Eastern Church, the, we call it Greek Orthodox today, said we can't take it anymore. This is just too different for us. Uh, there's some things that you've changed over there in Rome uh, that we can't put up with. And so they separated from the Western Church or the Roman Catholic Church by then. And that was the two big divisions. That's the great division in Christianity. Uh, and that's about where we got to last week. We talked about the pre-Reformation a little bit, how there was a period of time in there of a couple of hundred years uh, where some men started trying to reform the church and they got burned at the stake or uh, they got put to death some way. Uh, the church dealt pretty harshly with those guys that were trying to reform things. Then, that's probably about where we quit last week. So up on the... Western Church bar there. Uh, first notation I have there is 1534. Uh, Martin Luther, and I think most everybody knows the story of Martin Luther. He was a Catholic priest, uh, decided that there were a lot of things that the Catholic Church ought to change. Uh, they needed to reform, but they'd got off track. Uh, the biggie was uh, indulgences, selling indulgences. Uh, to raise enough money to build St. Peter's, uh, Martin Luther just didn't get that. He, he just thought that was so far wrong that somebody needed to do something about it. So he took it upon himself to be the, the spark of the Reformation, if you will. Uh, wrote down 95 things that he thought needed to be reformed, went and nailed them to the uh, church door there in the town where he lived, and that started quite a brouhaha. Uh, that started the Reformation. Uh, Luther, of course, was one of the first, but other people joined in. He had a lot of supporters and people that uh, list might not have been the exact same 95, but they had a lot of things that they thought the church ought to reform. And I just put two above the, the line there. I put Lutheran and Presbyterian. Uh, Presbyterian John Calvin, you've heard of him, the Calvinistic system of theology. Uh, he was from Switzerland. Uh, John Knox was from Scotland. Uh, they And these men didn't set out and say, I'm going to start a church. I'm going to start a Presbyterian church, which was named after the style of government that we talked about the very first week. Uh, all of this happened very gradually. They just wanted to correct uh, the Catholic Church, which they loved and had been raised in, and they just wanted to fix the things that had got off track. But over the period of years, uh, what and the way the Western Church had dealt with them uh, by declaring them heretics and uh, excommunicating them and things like that kind of forced them over into a, a new group. Uh, none of them, I think, intended to start their own church. Luther, in fact, said, I don't want anybody to ever call themselves after me. Uh, that's not what this is about. I just want to fix what's wrong. Uh, but over time, it evolved to where here's a group of Christians, uh, followers of Christ, that agree with what Luther's teaching or what Calvin's teaching. And they naturally band together, and pretty soon they become uh, a group that they name themselves. 
they denominate themselves as we're this kind of Christian. Okay. Uh, so above the line, I just put a couple there. And those are really the reformers, the, the Reformation people, the ones that want to reform Catholicism. Below the line, uh, that group's a little different. Uh, it's more of a rejection than a reform. Uh, and the, the big one that most of everybody else came off of is the Church of England, 1552, uh, Henry VIII, who was a Catholic and did what the Pope said and all of that. Uh, he did that until the Pope told him he couldn't do something that he wanted to do. Uh, Henry VIII had a few uh, marital changes in his <laughs> career, and uh, the Pope wouldn't approve one of them finally. And so Henry said, well, all right, I'll start my own church. And when you're king, you can do things like that. So <laughs> not, not everybody can just start their own church. But he did. Uh, he said, all right, I'm not going to be a Catholic anymore. We're going to be the Church of England. And uh, as the Church of England, I'll give myself permission to divorce and remarry and a few things like that. So that's where the Church of England came from. Today we call it Anglican, or this country Episcopal, but uh, that was not a an attempt to reform the Catholic Church, is what I'm saying. It was a rejection of it, and I'm going to start a brand new group. Now, obviously, since all he knew was Catholicism, uh, the Church of England looks a whole lot like the Catholic Church. Uh, it's got pretty much the same hierarchy and all sorts of things very similar uh, but rejected the Roman Catholic teaching. So Church of England started off then, and then from it, uh, people that were members of it uh, branched off into other things. The Baptists, their main disagreement was that baptism should be for believers only. Now, they didn't think you ought to baptize infants uh, and baptism was just for believers. So that eventually, like I said, all of this took a long time, split off and became a group that taught that with, along with a lot of the other teachings. Uh, John and Charles Wesley were members of the Church of England who their main thing was that they wanted to emphasize holiness more. They wanted to emphasize lifestyle over doctrine and church rules and regulations. Uh, they didn't worry too much. Well, they, they worried about them, but that wasn't their hang-up, doctrine. Their hang-up was practice. They wanted people, Christians, to live a very holy life, should work hard and should help others and uh, do all the things of, with the Puritan work ethic there, if you will. So they started holiness societies. They started uh, turning England and other places where they traveled. They traveled in America. And they ended up with a method of being a Christian. It's kind of where that term came from. Uh, they had a method that if you studied and prayed and observed these rules and lived a holy life and all that, then you were a good Christian. So that's where the Methodist kind of name came from. Uh, and they listed a number of things that 
holy saints ought to do. Um, so those are kind of from that Church of England branch and people coming off of it with a little different idea of how to do church and uh, becoming their own denomination, if you will. Okay, so that's kind of the big chart. Now, I mentioned last week that that is so incomplete that it's just humorous, actually. Uh, That chart could go on and on and on and just branch and branch and branch because off of each little group, more and more little groups came off. So this is kind of the big picture, if you will. All right. Uh, Now, what I've listed down at the bottom there, a couple of things we want to talk about to finish this chart up. First, there are some groups that don't really fit on this chart. Uh, They didn't come as a rejection of some existing denomination or a reformation of something. They were just kind of unique guys that dreamed something up, okay, kind of on their own. Now, they came out of something. They had some religious background, uh, but they came up with something that was, to be only semi-humorous, uh, off the chart. It, it didn't fit in with the rest of this. Uh, Joseph Smith, for instance, uh, back in the 1830s, uh, actually he had some uh, restoration uh, influence. Uh, he'd probably heard some of the, the Campbell preaching and some of those guys about restoring New Testament Christianity, he had a little bit of that background. Uh, But he also made his living as kind of a con man. He lived in upstate New York or somewhere in there. And uh, he had, back then it was a big deal, Indian burial grounds. Uh, You could find treasure at them, supposedly. And he was selling maps to go find treasure and kind of conning people out of their money. And all that, and one day he had, according to him, a vision. Uh, from my point of view, he had a better idea. Uh, he got a divine revelation. And the angel supposedly came to him and helped him transcribe the golden plates, and he came up with his own book, uh, the Book of Mormon, which had a lot of King James the English in it and a lot of a little bit of restoration principles and a little bit of Indian history and a little bit of everything in it. And he wrote it and began to promote it as a divine revelation from God himself and uh, began the, what we call Mormon, or today it's the Church of the Latter-day Saints, uh, and moved cross-country because he and his followers were persecuted everywhere he taught his religion. So he got run out of the east and moved to uh, Missouri, Independent, Missouri, Illinois in there and got run out of there and ended up in Salt Lake City. Um, so he's not, what I'm saying is he doesn't come off of this chart anywhere. He didn't object to something the Baptists were teaching. He just came up with his own religion. Uh, the Seventh-day Adventists, Christian Science, Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, all of that is kind of the same thing. A teacher, a unique individual, came up with some, usually a revelation from somewhere, and began to teach it and attracted some followers. So they don't really fit on the chart anywhere. The other thing on the chart is 
very right-hand side there at the bottom, at the bottom I said, from 1800 till today is something called the Restoration Movement. Okay? And most of us are fairly familiar with that, uh, and so I'm not going to spend a great deal of time on it, but I, I put a real succinct summary of it uh, on the, the front page, and we'll probably get through part of that today. Uh, what happened, basically, a real short version, in fact, you can look at the front page there if you want. Uh, first, I listed the principles, some of the principles of the Restoration Movement. In the early 1800s, uh, late 1700s, or a few of them, in this country, in America, and I think that's key to it, because the people that came over here in the 1700s and 1800s uh, had something in common. They were all pioneers. They had a different mindset uh, than a guy that was content to stay in London and be part of the Church of England. Uh, these guys were guys that thought of new places, of new visions, a pioneering spirit. And they were religious leaders and teachers, um, ministers and pastors and all that. Uh, but they got over here and they got away from their headquarters and they started understanding that this doesn't really work so good. I'm over here trying to teach uh, all these other pioneers and maintain the Methodist Church or the Baptist Church or the Presbyterian Church, and my headquarters are off across the ocean. And this is kind of cumbersome. And it's really amazing how it happened because a bunch of guys all basically within a few years of each other started thinking the same thing. Uh, to me, that's the interesting part of it, is they came up with the same basic solution. Uh, in 1794, a guy named James O'Kelly, who was a Methodist, uh, a few years later, 1801 in Vermont, two guys, Abner Jones and Elias Smith, they were both Baptists. 1803 in Kentucky, Barton W. Stone, who was a Presbyterian. A little later, Thomas Campbell came over from Scotland. He was a Presbyterian. A few years later, his son Alexander came over. All of these guys said, this denominational thing, this having a headquarters to report to and somebody telling me what the Bible says and all that, that doesn't work very good. On top of that, we're out here in the uh, the boondocks and we get all these Christians separated into little groups where these guys call themselves Baptists and we call ourselves Presbyterians and they call themselves Methodists and we, we can't associate, we can't have any kind of unity. Uh, this isn't a good way to do mission work. Yeah. So they all started to think at about the same time, well, how do we get unity? How do we get the church that we read about in the New Testament? How do we get a church that's one? You look up at that box on the chart, and that's the kind of thing they were thinking. Well, hold it. There's only one church. Jesus said it ought to be one. He said, how do we get there from where we are? So they began to think and teach that, well, the only way to do that 
is to go and just follow the Bible. And if we do that, we could restore the first century church. That's where restoration came from. Now understand how different that is from the other parts of our chart where Martin Luther said the Roman Catholic Church needs to be reformed. That's what he set out to do. These guys, from their denominational background, began to think, we need to restore the church. And since we can't find anything about a Methodist church or a Baptist church or a Presbyterian church, maybe that's not a good idea. Now, this is pretty radical thinking. Bear in mind, they've been raised in this. This is what they're used to. This is what they're ordained in. This is their whole life. But they got over here with this pioneer mentality, if you will, and the the real world of uh, things out there on the frontier, and they started talking, okay, let's see if we can restore this. Uh, And like I said, I'm not going to give you the details in order, but here's some of the key things. Uh, Some of the documents, important documents of the Restoration Movement. In 1804, uh, some of them wrote in a really kind of satirical mode, uh, the last will and testament of the Springfield Presbytery. Presbytery. That's why they got rid of it. They couldn't even say it. Uh, But (laughs) what they said in that document was that, okay, we we are members of this Springfield Presbytery. Uh, All of our churches are part of that, and we want that to die. So they wrote the last will and testament, and they put in there why we want it to die. Okay? And some of us have trouble thinking about what that really means because we're raised in the Church of Christ. We never had a headquarters. If you were raised Methodist or uh, Presbyterian or Lutheran or something like that, and you understand the hierarchy and the headquarters and all that, can you imagine the preacher getting up and saying, we want headquarters to die? We don't want any more headquarters. Uh, What we're going to do here in this church is we're just going to follow the Bible. We don't want anybody telling us what it says. We don't want anybody in charge of us. We're just going to do what the Bible says. And actually writing down the last will and testament of the presbytery. Well, that's what they did. They made some hard decisions. They made some hard moves. Once they decided... Having the Church of the New Testament is a really important goal, and we want to do that. Another slogan, which uh, Mr. Campbell wrote uh, in 1809, the Declaration and Address of the Christian Association. And some people say it's the most important religious document ever written in the United States. Uh, But what he said was, we ought to be able to be just Christians. We ought to be able to just have a Christian association, not have Baptists and Methodists and Presbyterians and Catholics and everything. We could just be Christians. And so he wrote this quite scholarly uh, speech and gave it to some gathering. 
that let's just be the Christian Association. Okay. Now, as these guys all started to teach this individually, pretty soon they found out about each other and they started to talk a little more like each other and decided that they had common goals. Uh, some of the slogans that they came up with, and I didn't put down who all was responsible for each one, but it doesn't matter because they were all saying the same thing. Now, now bear in mind, they were still tied to some denominations. Uh, Campbell stayed with the Baptists for a long time, and he was a Presbyterian, but he decided he fit better with Baptists, so he worked uh, with them for 15 years. In fact, the, his publication during that time was called The Christian Baptist. Uh, but he was teaching this new thinking that if we just follow the Bible, we can all be one. Okay. So here's some of their slogans that they came up with. One is, we will speak where the Bible speaks, and we'll remain silent where the Bible is silent. Okay. Most of you have heard that a thousand times in your life. Uh, that's a pretty good slogan. If you don't want all this denominational baggage and hierarchies and all that, well, the only way to get there, do what the Bible says and nothing else. Okay? Another one is, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, love. Now, what that statement says is not just so much what it says, but what it implies and really means is that there are some things that are essential in the Bible. You've got to do these. You've got to believe this. You've got to know this, or you're not going to heaven. Essentials, and then there's some non-essentials. There's some stuff that you don't have to agree on in this world. And it'll be all right. Yeah, that's a big admission. There's some folks today that don't know where to draw that line. And it's, I'm not saying it's easy to draw that line, but there's some folks that push it way over there where everything's essential. Okay, These guys who were thinking from different denominational backgrounds said there's some things we got to agree on. I mean, think about it. Just if you took these guys, if you put these five or six guys in a room and said, all right, how are we going to be one church? How can we worship together? Well, you'd eventually conclude there's some things we've got to agree on. We've got to believe that there is a God. Because the Bible says that. Anybody that comes to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who seek him. So if you're a Methodist and a Baptist and a Presbyterian, we all agree on that. If you're an atheist, whoa, we've got a problem. You, you can't be in our room with us. <laughs> not going to work. But that's an essential. Jesus Christ is his son, and he died for our sins. He was buried, and he was resurrected. The Bible says you've got to believe that. Paul said that's of first importance. Okay, so that's what that statement says, is there are essentials, and in those we've got to have unity. We've got to agree. But then in the non-essentials, and the things that, you know, the Bible's, Maybe not clear about, maybe mentions but doesn't make a big deal out of or something. Or maybe it's opinions about something. Let's have liberty there. Let's have freedom. If you think this way and I think this way and it's not essential, we can get along. And in all things, 
whether it's essential or non-essential or just crazy, wild opinion, let's love each other. Yeah, that's what these guys, I mean, this is profound thinking. This is the way we get the church to be one church again. Here's another one. They said, we are not the only Christians, but we're Christians only. We're not deciding who Christians are. Here's what we're thinking coming out of our denominations. Here's how we think we can get the church back together. But we're not claiming we're the only ones that got it right. But we are Christians only is what we want to be. Okay, and the last one I put down is the Bible only makes Christians only. If you just read what the Bible says and do what the Bible says, you will come out a Christian. To become a Baptist or a Methodist or a Presbyterian or a Catholic, you've got to do something else. You've got to have somebody in authority read a creed book and tell you to do something else to become anything except a Christian. The Bible only makes Christians only. And the last thing we'll cover tonight is the principles of the restoration. This is the thought process. This is what they've all agreed on, was that, well, since Christianity was perfect when it began, you can't reform it. So we don't want to reform Christianity. We want to restore the ancient order. It was right when God started it, when Jesus built his church and he told the apostles what to go out and preach, and they went out and started preaching by the divine authority of the Holy Spirit. That was right. Okay. If it was right then, we can't reform what we got. We got to restore that. Okay. Secondly, they agreed, or on a principle, that the New Testament is a divine constitution. And all we've got the right to do is what the New Testament says. If it doesn't authorize something, we don't have the authority to do that. Now, young people growing up today have trouble drawing that picture of a divine constitution. But that's what our American constitution used to mean. If it said you could do it, you could do it. If it didn't say the federal government could do it, the federal government couldn't do it. Okay, That's what a constitution is supposed to mean. Today, we've blown that out of the water, baby. People can do whatever they can get away with. Okay? Well, if you're old enough to remember what a real constitution is, that's what these guys were thinking. And bear in mind, they were in the 1800s when the constitution was pretty new. They said, the Bible is our divine constitution. If it says we can do it, we'll do it. If it says it doesn't authorize it, we won't do it. And their third principle or concept was that a return to the faith and practice of the New Testament would end denominational divisions and restore the unity of Christ's church. Now, that's a big thought. Uh, That's a really big thought is, all right, we want the New Testament church the way it was. We don't want all these divisions, all this foolishness. Well, what we got to do is restore what there used to be, 
by following the Bible, which tells us what they used to do. And if we do that, well, denominations will die. And we'll just have one New Testament church. We'll just all be Christians. Now, that's turned out to be a little bit Pollyanna-ish, I guess, but that's good reasoning. That's how they figured it. And so they set out to restore the New Testament church. Not just these guys, but a bunch of other folks uh, in the 1800s there, that period. Um, When I said it was a little bit... never-never land thinking. I say that because it turned out to be a lot harder in practice than it is in theory. It's a very simple theory. Is the Bible the description of the New Testament church? Yes. If we just did what it said, would we all be one? Yes. Now you start to try to apply that, and it gets hard, Okay, which they found out. They divided. <laughs> they all came from the same place, but they had a few divisions. And they just didn't agree on some of those things that were, they had trouble to drown that line between essential and non-essential. They had a few problems. So from that movement, there are basically three groups of followers of Christ that exist today. Uh, the Church of Christ is one, of which we are members. Uh, the Christian Church, the Conservative Christian Church, which is uh, down the road a piece from us, and the Disciples of Christ. All three of those came from this movement. Uh, we have remained the most conservative, if, if you will, the most uh, strict and true to those original principles. Uh, The disciples of Christ have basically, well, not basically, they have admitted that they don't believe in the restoration plea anymore. They don't believe that it's possible. So they're not working to restore the New Testament church. They they want to be a denomination and have headquarters and do things their way. They're still much more conservative than a lot of the religious world. But they've said, no, the restoration plea is not a not feasible these days. Uh, So we've given up on that. Conservative Christian Church is in between there and closer to us than to the disciples of Christ in there where they draw the line and what they do on a lot of things. But all three of those that exist today came from the Restoration Movement. Okay, that's probably enough for tonight. Uh, What we'll work on next week is the practice of this. Once you start, once you agree on the principles, is we can follow the Bible, we can restore the New Testament church. What kind of things do you run into? Well, that's where the rubber met the road and things got a little bit harder and it wasn't as easy as they thought it was. But we need to understand that because we still believe in the restoration plea and still want to be known as the New Testament church and be known as Christians only and all of that. So... That's uh, where we'll go next week on uh, the 28th. Lesson is yours. If you're here this evening and need to respond to the Lord's invitation in some way, we'd be happy to help you. If you need prayers in your life or uh, something that this family can pray.
pray with you about, we'd be happy to do that tonight. So if you have some need, let's stand and sing. Brother Luke, come and lead us. And if you need to come, come. <laughs>